This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. When he was growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Jeremiah Ostreicher seldom got to see the stars, but he still went on to become one of the world's most influential astronomers. Ostreicher was among the first researchers in the field of cosmology, the study of the origin and fate of the universe, to propose a model of the universe that accounts for two unseen elements that are shaping it gravitationally powerful dark matter, which holds galaxies together, and dark energy, a mysterious force pushing the universe apart. He has since studied the formation of galaxies and their relationship with black holes. Jeremiah Ostreicher is a professor of astronomy at Columbia University in New York City. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 1974. So the name is Jerry Ostreicher, more formally Jeremiah Ostreicher. I'm an astronomer, and I've worked in many, many different fields in astronomy. My first paper was on Venus, saying that it was hot, and my recent work has been on galaxies and quasars and black holes and all kinds of exotic things in the distant universe. And in between, I worked on dark matter and dark energy and other strange parts of cosmology. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a dark site in that it was New York City and you couldn't see the sky at all. <laughs> and I was interested in science as a child. My mother read to me science books when I, when I couldn't read. I was so curious about it all. But I didn't decide to do astronomy until much, much later. I was interested in plants and chemistry and why things fell when you dropped them and everything that you could try to figure out as a little kid. I grew up mainly on the west side of Manhattan, about a block from Riverside Park, and I did the things that kids did at that time, played stickball in the streets and and went to the park and played with the other kids and did all kinds of things like that. My mother was a teacher. She taught at PS9, Public School 9, which was just across the street from where we lived, and that was good because it protected me. I was small and easily beaten up, but, but she the other students respected her, and so it was a little bit of protection for me. <laughs> uh, and my father was a businessman in what used to be called the rag trade, uh, making blouses and things like that. You described your mother, your mother reading to you about science. Do you remember a specific moment when you first became interested in science? No, because I think it was right at the beginning. There's a picture, a painting of me which I remember being made. The artist was Raphael Sawyer, and we still have the painting. And in it, I'm sitting quite still, and I remember the book my mother was reading to me. I was four years old, and it was a little red science book with pictures of growing things and dinosaurs and whatnot in it. So I think I was just curious about the world right from the beginning. How did you find your way into astronomy then? Well, I took science classes and other classes, and uh, in fact, I took a lot of literature classes in college. I majored in chemistry, and then I switched to physics, and I took one astronomy course, 
at Harvard and didn't like it at all. And I thought, gee, this isn't the subject for me. <laughs> I married a poet, and I was more interested in my literature classes than I was in the science classes. And I drank a lot. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't think you could have said I was a devoted scientist at that time. I certainly wasn't a nerd. But science was just a lot of fun. It was interesting to me. One interesting thing in college was that I thought my best course in teaching me how to do science was not a science course. Archibald MacLeish, who was, had been the poet laureate of the United States, was teaching an undergraduate poetry course at Harvard. And he would do things like give all the students a piece of paper on which something was written, a poem, and say, write something on this next week. And you didn't know whether it was a Shakespeare sonnet or an unpublished poem or by somebody or something that some student had handed in last week. You were just supposed to do something with it. And you could write on the meaning or the met metrics or anything. And it struck me that that's the way science is. The way science works is you're just given some observational facts. And you don't know what they mean or which ones are important and which ones are false clues. And you have to make some sense of it. And unfortunately, the way science is taught, it's taught like a crossword puzzle. And there's a right answer, and you have to fill in the right answer. And very often, it turns out that people who are taught that, when they have to try to be scientists, can't do it very well. Because they don't understand that what science is about is finding the right questions, not finding the right answers. <laughs> so the best course I took at Harvard for science was this Archibald MacLeish poetry course. And then I took a year off after college and uh, worked at Naval Research Laboratory to decide what I wanted to do. And there I read about Chandrasekhar, who was a great physicist and astrophysicist. And he, there was a set of articles at that time in Fortune magazine. And he was very, very impressive to me. He seemed so smart and so elegant and interested in such big subjects. And he was teaching at University of Chicago. And I just applied to Chicago to go to graduate school, thinking I could work with him. And I started, and then I found that he didn't take students, or at least that's what everyone told me. All the other students said, Chandra doesn't take students. I said, but I came here to work with him. And then I realized after a while that since every incoming student was told this, none of them asked him, and so he didn't take any students because no one asked him to. <laughs> This is astronomy students. He took physics students from Chicago. And so I asked him, and there was a certain apprenticeship stage, but then it was yes, and it turned out very well. He is, was, deceased now, very careful, very witty. I, he was very warm with his students. He terrified lots of people, but he was very warm with his students. He would put prospective students through a set of tests, give them problems to solve, have them check his work. And it was sort of like being a novice to a guru, which I didn't mind at all. And that lasted several months. And then when that was finished, he took me as a student. And he was always very warm and supportive. I enjoyed working with him a tremendous amount, learned a lot. And then he had done his thesis in Cambridge. So that's why I went after graduate school. And that led to a long-time association with Cambridge. I went back to Cambridge as a professor, the Plumian professor, uh, 1995. So I was there as a postdoc, and then I came to Princeton, and then I went back again. What work are you proudest of? 
I guess the most exciting things were first being involved with neutron stars. I worked with Jim Gunn on that, explaining pulsars. Um, there are many people who worked in that field at that time, but um, that was the f among the first discoveries of relativistic objects and to try to understand this. These were things that went beep, 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 and no one could figure out what they were. Um, Fritz Zwicky, an eccentric Swiss astronomer, found that there were clusters of galaxies where the galaxies were buzzing around at high speed. And what kept the things from blowing apart? There must have been something holding them together. And he worked out how much mass that something must have had and found out that it was nearly 100 times, at least 10 times more than the mass of the stars that you could see there. And he actually called it cold dark matter in clusters of galaxies. So that there were clusters of galaxies he could see, which where the glue holding them together gravitationally was what he called cold dark matter. And then in this next couple of years, various people looking at our neighbor galaxy Andromeda saw that it was rotating in its outer parts much faster than you could account for because if there was only as much gravity as there was due to the stars you could see, again, the galaxy would be flying apart. And so there must have been much stronger forces pulling it together. And Babcock and others calculated from the rotation of Andromeda that it must have had much more matter of some dark kind than there was matter in the visible stars. And these two things were done in the 30s. And there were more and more evidence built up over time that in the outer parts of galaxies and in surrounding them, there was a lot of matter which contributed to the gravitational field, which wasn't in stars. At least it wasn't in normal stars. And then the questions were, well, maybe it was in faint stars, or maybe it was in dust, or maybe it was in gas. And gradually, all of these other possibilities were eliminated. And what you were left with was some kind of self-gravitating substance which wasn't ordinary matter. And when uh, Peebles and I looked over it in the 70s, we looked over all the evidence, and here was a particularly simple one. Again, we didn't invent it. Our nearest galaxy companion is Andromeda. You can see it in the winter sky. It's coming towards us. All other galaxies are going away from us just about. So why is that one coming towards us? Well, it must be that the gravitational attraction between the two of us, our galaxy and Andromeda, is enough to pull the two together. Well, people have then calculated how much mass they have to have for the gravity to be pulling the two together. And again, it was the amount of mass was like what Swicky or Babcock would have gotten. It had to have much more dark matter there than ordinary matter. So there were many, many, many different arguments at this time that was put together. So that was ex extremely exciting. And then the other thing that I was involved in, again, it was many people involved in it, was with Paul Steinhardt in putting together a picture with where dark energy was another vital component of the universe, which is even more of it than there is of dark matter. And what is dark energy? Dark energy seems to be something that's blowing the universe apart. Just as dark matter is what's holding galaxies together, dark energy is what's on very large scales blowing it apart. In 1995, Paul Steinhardt and I put together all the arguments Mike Turner did it at a similar time, and Beatrice Tinsley did it at a similar time. There were three groups which said that if you took all of the evidence, 
there was must have been something else in the universe that was blowing it apart. And I'll give an example of one of the different kinds of evidence. We could date galaxies, and we got 15 billion years for the age of the stars and the galaxies. But when you dated the universe by the rate at which it was blowing apart, you got 10 billion years. Well, there's something wrong here if the things in the universe are older than the universe. So that was called the timing problem. And we recognized, and other people had too, that if the universe was accelerating now, it seems as if it's younger than it is because it's speeding up. And that could account for the discrepancy. So that was one of the arguments that we and others used. But what we did was put together all the different arguments and conclude that the best fit model had a great deal of dark energy in it. And then that was confirmed later by the supernova work, which got a Nobel Prize just two years ago where they could see directly from the, that the rate of expansion of the universe was increasing with time rather than decreasing. You normally think that, and people expected for a very long time from Einstein on, that the universe would be expanding, but then it's going slower and slower in its rate of expansion as gravity slowed it down. But instead, it seems to be going faster and faster. And that was what was confirmed then by the supernova work that got the Nobel Prize two years ago. So... That was the, I guess, the third thing that was a a lot of fun to be involved in. Um, And what I'm involved in right now, to bring things up to date, well, there's two subjects I think are most interesting. One is star formation, which is too hard, and my daughter works on. She's a professor now at Princeton. (laughs) But the other is galaxy formation and the role of black holes in galaxy formation. And so I've been working on that um, in the last decade, people have found that in almost every galaxy there's a massive black hole. There also seems to be some symbiotic relation between the black holes and the galaxy. So the black holes live at the center, and they're about one thousandth the mass of the galaxy. And there's a pretty good linear relation in the sense that if you double the mass of the galaxy, you double the mass of the black hole. And then there's the question of how that comes about. How would something tiny at the center of the galaxy affect the whole galaxy, or how would the whole galaxy affect something tiny at the center? So it's been a puzzle. So that is a current subject of quite a bit of interest and excitement. Can we understand what's going on with the black holes at the center of the galaxies? Are they important in the formation of the galaxy, or vice versa? Does the galaxy determine the formation of the black hole? How would you go about answering that question, which comes first, the black hole or the galaxy? Ah. Well, the simplest and most direct way of doing astronomy is you look. So you look at galaxies in which the black holes are active, and what you see is that what is coming out of them is a lot of radiation and also very powerful winds. And so there are increasing numbers of observations showing how when the black hole explodes, which they seem to do periodically, there's a tremendous output from them. And then you try to calculate how this output could affect the galaxy. And then to try to see if, therefore, the black hole could have affected the growth of the galaxy. The question of, uh, you described how with dark matter and dark energy, it's basically taken for granted as understood. You're dealing in high precision now. Um, But I think for a lot of our listeners, there's still a sense of mystery around it. So... um, can you explain in the simplest terms sort of what the accepted model is of 
you know, what dark matter is and okay. why it's there, and dark energy and why it's there and why things are accelerating? I have a metaphor for dark matter and dark energy. It's as, it's as if you go into a restaurant and there's a cook who doesn't seem to understand very much and who just serves up the most delicious meals. And you taste them and they're just wonderful and tremendous variety and everything works out. And you ask where the cook gets the things and he just reaches in, he or she reaches into the jar and pulls out stuff and puts it in the food. And you don't know what it is, but it tastes great. Well, that's sort of what we have now. We have a model for the universe where they have the ordinary matter, which is what tables and chairs and stars are made out of. And that's called baryonic matter. And we do understand that. All chemistry and all physics has, ex explains that. We learn about it in school. Then we have another component of which there's more of it, which is dark matter, which we can't see, but we see its gravitational effects everywhere. And it seems to be the glue that holds together galaxies and other structures. And then there's some force on a much larger scale, which we call dark energy, but it's just a label, which is pushing things apart. Now, if you take this model and try to predict anything from this model and say, I'm going to look out to high redshift and see so-and-so, what does this model predict I should see? Everything comes out right. If you predicted what the um, supernova observers were going to see, it came out just right. So any measurement that you want to predict with this model, which contains ordinary matter, dark matter, and dark energy, with a precise mixture of the three, it comes out right. So we think we have the right model, but the two major ingredients are total mystery to us. We don't know what they are. So it would be nice if someone did a laboratory experiment and got a jar full of dark matter and said, this is what it is, and we now know it, and we've done experiments with it. But that hasn't happened yet. And dark energy, is, it's, it's even harder to see if you can find any other effects of dark energy. So it's a bit of a puzzle in that the model we have is on the one hand a complete success by all the senses of science, and the other hand we're completely ignorant about the primary components of the universe. So are we ahead or behind? We keep on querying the cook. What is it that you're using to make these delicious tasting dinners? And the answer is no one knows. Is that still a field that you're working on in addition to... Well, I kind of, to be honest, I've given up. I like to work in fields where there are hints and there's some tantalizing evidence which you can make more of. So this question of the black holes in galaxies, there's lots of evidence building up and there's lots of things that you could calculate, lots of things that you can observe. But with dark matter and dark energy, we just have a conundrum. It's there. We know how much of it is. But there's no other evidence. You just draw a blank. So right now it seems too hard. A lot of, of the questions that you tackle in cosmology are, are, are really big, sort of fundamental, you know, what is dark energy or, or why do things work in the universe the way that they do? 
but they're very remote, I think, uh, in most, people, most people's minds from human life, from day-to-day -day things. So what keeps you interested in something like that? Well, I would turn it around. So the question is, what keeps you interested? I remember when I was, you know, a high school student, reading the local papers, and then I wanted to read what national events were. And then international events, the local events, seemed sort of obvious and trivial. And then, if I could have gotten the intergalactic news, I would have read that. <laughs> so the larger scale and the bigger problems seem just intrinsically bigger and more exciting to me. And I think that's just a matter of temperament. Uh, some people in the, who live in a given town will be interested in mostly in what's happening in their town and what the news is there. And some people would read the national news and some people would read the international news. And I think it's just a question of temperament. A metaphor which I heard a very long time ago about astronomers of the world is that if you stand outside, the whole planet Earth is just a speck of dust. I mean, it literally is rock, like a piece of dust. And there are five billion people on it, on this little, teeny little thing, creatures. Most of them looking down or at each other. Uh, or I should have said five billion minus 5,000. And there are 5,000 looking up at the whole rest of the universe. Those are the astronomers. <laughs> and so that's exciting. You have so much more to work on. Not every kid will be interested in that. But for the ones who are, who look up at the sky and wonder what's out there. You know, I know an awful lot about my little brother, but I'm interested in things that are bigger and further away. Um, astronomy is just the right ticket. And almost all societies, as far back as we know, in all different cultures, have been interested in these companies how it all began, where it's all going to go. Sometimes when I give popular lectures, I actually start with the first chapter in the Bible, in the beginning, because for whatever reason, and I can't guess what the reason is, the first couple of chapters of Genesis are an awful lot like our current cosmology. The earth was without form and void, and there was darkness. Well, there's a period in after the Bing Bang, when everything was very... Then, then structure develops. The earth was without form and void, etc., etc., etc. So, people have been thinking in these terms for a very long time. And now we can go out and make measurements and see things. So it was exciting. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Do what you love. There's always time, there's always energy. That's the critical variable. I mean, find out what you're good at, of course. But then f focus on what you enjoy doing. There's never a lack of time. Maybe in some cases there's a lack of money where people actually can't afford to go to school, you know, and they can't get scholarships. I can't say, but certainly I've worked with a lot of talented students from poor backgrounds who managed to make it. So I think it's just loving it and working at it. Nothing that isn't completely obvious. 
I've also done a lot of administrative work. And people say, doesn't that take time? You know, as provost of Princeton. And people often say, well, gee, now that I'm department chair or something like that, I don't have time to do any research. I always think people have as much time for anything they want to do. You know, when people say they don't have enough time for so-and-so, I I refrain from asking them, but I always think, gee, did you have time to have dinner last night? Everybody had time to have dinner last night because they want to have dinner. (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to add or anything you thought I would ask you that I haven't? Let's see. Well, I guess there's one part of um, astronomy which I alluded to, which is very enjoyable for all astronomers, and that is how totally international it is and has always been. The stars shine down on everyone in all parts of the planet, and from the beginning of human history, astronomers in different parts of the world, even during wars, have talked to one another and been communicating with one another. As I mentioned, my own teacher was an Indian, and I got familiar with a little tiny bit of Indian culture through that teacher. So I think that's a very rewarding part of a career in science in general and in astronomy in particular, that it's totally international. All your colleagues, your students will be, you'll travel all over the world, you'll see all different kinds of things. So that's a real plus, and I don't think it's always appreciated. That This is something of a broad appeal, and it'll take you to all kinds of places which you might not otherwise get to, you know, whether it's the South Pole or Chile or India or China. So that's an attraction of a scientific career and an astronomical one that people should think about. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.